Welcome to the Reason Name Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Rachel. Hello. And Chris. Yo. We're going to do our standard news roundup this evening. We're going to return to the Reason Name Movie Club to discuss Friends with Kids. And we're going to talk about Homeland Season 3 and how that's going so far after its first two episodes. So stick with us about the hour. I think it's going to be a good one. Um, as you may have noticed in that lineup, we are going to do Movie Club first this evening for reasons that you don't need to care about, listeners, so get ready for that. Um, I know our listeners tend to riot when we do any slight shake-up in our format, so everyone please stay calm, it's going to be fine. Well, uh, the, the listeners will clearly not be uh, surprised by the fact that Chris is the worst, and therefore they'll be totally fine with it. No, I mean, they're, they're pretty much familiar with that. Yeah. They will, however, be surprised that Rachel is alive. Oh, yeah. good job, Chris. <laughs> they, Burn! They will be surprised by that. <laughs> Valid. Um, great, so... <laughs> when the, way when to keep the, the flow going, the Jordan. fighting over so we can uh, start the news right up, or do you guys just want to, like, uh, claw at each other for, for a little while? We're on a deadline here, Jordan. Let's keep it moving. All keep right. Snappy. So, our first news story this week, uh, the BBC has soft announced, is what I'm going to go ahead and call what they've done, that they have found some of the lost Doctor Who episodes. Um, those of you who are not familiar with the problems in the uh, classic series, for a while in the 60s and 70s, the BBC had the brilliant foresight to tape over episodes of sh- their television programs to save space. So about 106, well not about, exactly 106 episodes of Doctor Who had, had been taped over and thus lost. Um, or they remain lost. More had been lost and have been recovered since. 106 episodes remain lost. The BBC has announced some of those episodes have since been found. Um, they have not yet said how many episodes or which episodes, but there is about to be more Doctor Who in the world. Um, what do we think about this, guys? Chris? Well, I've never been the Doctor Who completionist that you are, Jordan. In fact, your quest to go through and watch absolutely everything you possibly can get your hands on sort of it fills me with fear of the prospect of like how much time that would take (laughs) um i mean i love the show a lot i like uh where i picked up watching it with the 2005 uh relaunch but i never really had the same great completionist desire to go back and start from the very very beginning and have all the gaps filled in so while i'm happy for doctor who fans on this i'm probably i'm not terribly thrilled for myself and for me i'm probably just gonna stick with the um post 2005 uh russell t davies relaunch era doctor who fair enough rachel well you know not being the worst i'm actually pretty excited about this (laughs) Um, because i like jordan tend to have some completist tendencies um And it took me a while to start watching Doctor Who because I was like, but there are all of these episodes from before and some of them aren't even available and how will this even work? Um, So I'm pretty excited that more of this is going to kind of open up, even though I haven't kind of gone back and started with the classic Who yet. Um, I imagine that I will sometime, you know, relatively soon. Um, so I'm glad that there will be more, be it two episodes or be it all 106 lost episodes. Yes, I believe somewhere in that range is what is what we've been able to figure out from the internet. Um, crazy Thanks, people, internet. Crazy people are saying, like, they found them all! And something tells me that we will not be hearing later this week that the BBC has literally every lost episode of Doctor Who available to it now. Um, that'd be great. I'd be a happy camper. 
Uh, personally, this is really exciting to me because I'm currently watching uh, through the Patrick Trotton era. He's the second Doctor and the place where most of the missing episodes rely, uh, lie. Um, there are only five complete serials in his entire run as the Doctor. And I haven't seen any of them yet, which means I've been working my way through a virtually entirely missing season of the show, uh, watching basically still photographs of the characters and listening to audio. So if any season four stories were to pop up, that would be great for me because it would stop me from having to watch the reconstructions, although I've already watched them all at this point. Um, I'd, I'd hope to see, like, if, if any episodes turn up, I hope they are complete stories, but I'll take anything I can get, I guess, and I'll be happy for it. I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah. Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you that you don't have the completionist tendencies that I do because, like, your life is probably better. And Rachel, talk to me when you start watching uh, original series and we can geek out about uh, William Hartnell and how he's pretty awesome. I mean, I'm going to have to finish rewatching The West Wing first, but I'll uh, get to it. So you're never going to get to it because you are always rewatching <laughs> The West Wing. I feel like every time you're on the podcast, you're just like, guys, I'm rewatching The West Wing again. <laughs> well, I'm always rewatching The West Wing. Rachel's unstuck in time. Well, what are you going to do? At, at that point, I think I'm going to toss it over to you, Chris, for our next news story, which is also Doctor Who flavored. Wow, thanks for taking away my seg. Okay, <laughs> so in a Doctor Who-related story, following the last Doctor Who-related story, um, so Matt Smith, is has been announced that his uh, follow-up project to his role as the Doctor is going to be a, um, a musical production of American Psycho. Um, not much information has been, uh, released thus far. We know that the play is being, uh, adapted by, uh, Roberto Aguara-Sacasa, who's someone I'm familiar with, but I, this is, I was just reading over this article right now, this is the first I've heard of his involvement. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a musical rendition of American Psycho. What do you guys think about that? Rich? I, I mean, I don't even know. I can't even wrap my brain around it, to be perfectly frank. Um, I, I just don't. I just. I mean, I'm super thrilled to see Matt Smith in anything, obviously. Um, and I'm. But a, but a musical American Psycho, I just don't even. I can't even really comprehend how it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put myself on the cautiously optimistic bandwagon. Um, I love Matt Smith. Matt Smith singing sounds great. Matt Smith playing uh, Patrick Bateman sounds awesome. I don't know that the story of American Psycho lends itself to a musical. Yeah, I feel like it really doesn't. Like, I, I, I it, it seems like one of those things where, um, it, I, I can't imagine what those songs would sound like in my head. Like, like not. I have no idea where to even begin with imagining how this would go down, like how you would execute this. I really hope it's just the songs of Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a, it's half American psycho and half just a tribute to Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> um, well, yeah. But, uh, between all of his killings, he just sings songs from uh, sports. Yeah. I mean, to me, this kind of just vaguely, um, just shades of like I, American Psycho is one of those things for me. Like you don't really need to return to like at like uh, I haven't read the book. I've heard good things. I love the movie to death. Um, 
they there was a sequel that the less said about the better that I didn't even know existed because I think the producers of the original did a very good job about sweeping it under the rug. Um, I just don't know that we need to return to this well all that much. And for me, I don't like I love Matt Smith. I think he's fantastic, but um, I, I don't really I, I don't know that I can see a non Patrick a non. Um, Christian Bale. Christian Bale, Patrick Bateman. Like that that's how much he is Patrick Bateman to me. For a minute, I almost called him Patrick Bateman. The actor, <laughs> as opposed to the uh character. Well, Patrick Bateman's a good enough actor that no one knows he's like serial killing, right? Yeah. I think it'll be interesting. I'm reading now that the score will be by um Duncan Sheik, who's the Tony Award winning composer of Spring Awakening, which is a sort of modernly adapt musical that a lot of people have been pretty crazy about. So it sounds like there's a really solid team behind it. But we'll see what happens. We will see what happens because time moves forward and eventually this will be a real thing and not just something we're talking about on the podcast. So are, you, are we going to go to London and see this thing? Let's do it. <laughs> we'll record live during intermission a podcast, like a 15-minute podcast where we all go, we're halfway through. We can't really talk about it yet because, you know, we want to watch the whole thing first. Guys, if we haven't sold you on this segment yet, start sending us money so we can make this a real <laughs> thing. Wait, what if we did, uh, no one would know. The best thing about recording a podcast uh, abroad is no one would know. Like, we would just be like, oh, we're in Piccadilly Circus. And then, like, Chris could be, like, throwing his voice, being like, oh, hey. Get your paper, or whatever people say in Piccadilly Circus. I was not going to do a British accent because that would be embarrassing. I really wish oh. you would have. I'll authenticate. I, thought, I, I went so far as to go like an oi, and then I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> abort, don't do it. This is a podcast. No listener wants to hear your terrible, terrible British accent. I'll authenticate it by reading the, the headline of today's newspaper in Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> right. <laughs> I will read today's headline. Today's headline, which yes. also like would not help anyone because you know the podcast comes out days. I meant, I meant day of the play, Jordan. You know what oh, I meant. Day, oh, you guys, the play, you guys. Would be like, the government is still shut down. Okay, the government is still shut down. Yeah, this is week. This is shutdown podcast part two. Although part one has still not been released when we are recording this, which I'm dating us again. Yeah. But I'm well, confident in saying that the government is still shut down. I actually think this should be a new game on the podcast for you listeners. Um, every week, you should all like tweet us, email us, etc. And tell us when you think we recorded the podcast. And the person who gets closest will get shouted out on the podcast. That's stupid. <laughs> Rachel thinks that's stupid. Well, if all of our listeners think that's stupid, no one ever does it. Then no one will ever get shouted out on the podcast. Okay. Well, don't be disheartened, uh, listeners, by me calling it stupid just because I think it's stupid. If you think it's not stupid, go ahead and participate. I guess that's true. <laughs> it's it's a pretty thing, but I would find it funny. Um, with that, why don't we move on, Rachel, uh, for to your news story for the week. Okay, so my news story, which is completely not Doctor Who related... Um, is that Amy Poehler has recently sold a new sitcom to NBC. Um, she'll be working with her brother, Greg. The show will be called Welcome to Sweden, and it's about um, a man who falls in love with a Swedish woman and then leaves the U.S. to be with her. Um, it'll feature some interesting guest spots from Amy Poehler herself, as well as Aubrey Plaza, Will Ferrell, and Gene Simmons. Um, and it's fun fact, it, it, it will be the first... Um, 
English language sitcom to ever be uh, filmed in Sweden. That that is so. Fun. That's exciting. That's exciting. Um, I imagine that it'll be Amy Poehler doing a lot of Swedish chef voice, um, running around with a rogue chicken. Um, yeah, that's, that's almost certainly that's... not what the show is going to be. <laughs> no, you don't no. think so? That's upsetting. Um, well, those are my hopes and dreams for it. Do others have opinions? I'm intrigued by the idea of a man named Greg Poehler. Um, like, we've never heard of this guy before, really, unless, like, I don't know, I've never wikipedia Amy Poehler, uh, and looked at, like, the relative section, so I wasn't even aware of his existence. Um, he's new, new blood. Maybe he's funny because he's related to Amy Poehler, but I don't think that's a, a rule of genetics. So, that's what's intriguing to me about this, is seeing what's up with this guy. Chris? Okay, Chris. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Greg Poehler is just Amy Poehler in drag. <laughs> that'll be pretty awesome. Right? And then that'll be like the big reveal at the end of the second season. It's, it's, it's like a uh, seasons-long crying game adaptation. <laughs> We're all like, man, I really love Greg Poehler. I can't wait to see what else Greg Poehler does. And then at the end, uh, he, what, he pulls off like a... a a short hair wig to reveal Amy Poehler's long hair, and we're like, oh my god, it was her all along! Yeah, exactly. And then you'll never be able to tell, like, the real Greg Poehler from the Amy Poehler portrayed Greg Poehler. Oh, there's Tina no real Fey. Greg Poehler. Yeah, oh, we're no, going it's just with performance art by her. Up. No, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's cool, too. Uh, <laughs> Rachel was so full, she was like, no, but when's Greg <laughs> Poehler coming out? So I'm doing some digging, and it... Sh- the show was semi-autobiographical, um, and Greg Poehler will actually star as Bruce, a New York accountant who moves to Sweden after falling in love with Swedish girl Emma. Wait, this- Bruce Poehler? Yeah, Bruce Poehler. <laughs> cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, and this... Yeah, uh, that's it. <laughs> I thought you had more information. <laughs> so I thought I. that because of the way you primed us for more information arriving by starting a sentence. Uh, I thought I had something else, and then I finished reading the sentence I was reading and realized it was not something worth parlaying. Well, <laughs> I think we could move in. You did. We wanted to do one more news story, I think. So, Rach, why don't we move into that? I do. I'm pulling an audible here, and I am making a news story out of some ridiculous comments by one Lino DeSalvo who you may know as the head of animation for Disney on their new film, Frozen, who made some ridiculous comments earlier, I believe today. So, hey, that'll help you, you know, date the podcast. Um, About how it is historically difficult to animate female characters. And DeSalvo, the quote here is, historically speaking... Animating female characters are really, really difficult because they have to go through these range of emotions, but they're very, very, you have to keep them pretty. You can get them off a model very quickly. So having a film here with two female characters was really tough, which I call complete and total BS on, considering a huge amount of the Disney animated classics are um, based on women and the central characters are women and I don't think that um they've come across as particularly flat um and to kind of 
First of all, to claim that women are difficult to animate over, you know, regular people, I don't know, donkeys, ogres, or any of the other number of things that have been animated at this point uh, is bullshit. And I think it's just women, donkeys, and ogres. Uh, that's that's all that's point. been animated like, at this point, yeah. Um, it's weird we've never animated, like, animated. a giraffe or a, or a human male. I don't know what's going very on strange, Very strange, very <laughs> strange. Well, apparently, human males are, in fact, just cardboard boxes and incredibly easy to animate because they don't have emotions, right? Human male, do you have emotions? No. No, okay. So My only know. emotion is a desire for beer. So maybe maybe this guy's not that off base, but I think it's bullshit, uh, and <laughs> I'm not happy with it. As somebody who is a strong proponent of Disney films, um, just always, and animation in general, I think it's kind of BS to send this message that uh, I mean, women sounds... are hard oh, to animate or, you know, it, it seems like a cop-out to me. It's like, oh, let's not animate them because it's difficult. Bothers me. It just it just sounds to me like this guy is a shitty animator. Uh, I mean, if he's, <laughs> he's going to say, like, I just, like, I find it hard to animate women and, and their range of emotions, that just means you're bad at your job. Like, right? that, says, <laughs> that says nothing about women. That says something about you as an animator. That's, that's what Jordan thinks. Although, if, if I were animating Disney's Frozen, it would be, like, two stick figures, and you would be able to tell that one of them was a girl because she had a triangle for a dress. Because um, <laughs> all girls wear dresses, right? Yeah, and if I was okay. animating Disney's Brave, you would not be able to tell that Pixar's Brave, really. You would not be able to tell that I've seen the men and the women at all because of kilts. Yeah, you'd just be completely thrown off. But uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's bad news. And like, not to get on my high horse, I try not to get up there that often. <laughs> um, I feel like you're justified here, so go ahead and climb on up. <laughs> but part of my problem with this is, especially considering that animation is, while animation is really awesome, and I think that amazing things are being done in animation beyond the children's genre, considering that animation is in fact geared towards children, to send this message that, you know, women have emotions and men don't, and to try to justify excluding women from animation because it's hard to animate those emotions sends a really shitty message to like our children boys and girls alike um and it bothers me it bothers me i don't like it yeah i i completely agree um also i just like it just again it not beyond being a bad animator it just sounds like He's like, it's hard to animate lots of emotions, so we should, what, tell, like, flatter, less interesting stories in animated films? Is that what this leads to? Yeah, and it's completely utter bullshit, again, because if you think about it, like, moving beyond Disney animation, which, again, built on the backs of female characters, but whatever, I think some of the... often interesting and dynamic female characters who have a range of emotions that are animated... First of all, yeah, and especially considering that all animation, a shit ton of animation, especially for Disney, is done by computer now, it kind of is just, like, a bitch slap to all of the animators of the early Disney films who were, like, doing amazing things pre-computer, like, computer animation. Like, what bullshit. But I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about how amazingly well Wonder Woman has been portrayed in animation. Uh, as I was telling Jordan earlier... Thankfully, nobody who I work with listens to this podcast, but I was in my office on Friday watching uh, The Flashpoint Paradox, uh, which is a really, really great animated film um, about 
a kind of like what if scenario playing with time um, in the Justice League universe. And once again, the Wonder Woman in that film is such a fucking badass. And considering the constraints of the story and like the, the different plot pieces has to show one of the most significant ranges in emotion that I've ever seen portrayed in animation or otherwise. And the animators did it just fine. So this douchebag uh, should go away. Chris, have you seen Flashpoint Paradox? No, I haven't yet. Oh, it's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to finally getting around to watching that. Yeah, at some point, I I would like to see that as well. But I, um, this, I, you said his name. I don't remember his name, but he's wrong. (laughs) Um, And I, like, I feel like that's obvious, though. So, like, Way to be an asshole, Disney animator whose name I already can't remember. And I don't want to, because I don't really need to listen to anything you have to say for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I I think maybe probably the end result of this is going to be, hopefully this story does gain wider attention, because I think there's a whole huge group of very talented up-and-coming animators more and more every day who are just going to see that as a gauntlet being thrown down and swoop in to take this guy's job. I hope. Yeah. yeah. All future projects, I mean. That, yeah, right. Uh, although, I don't know, Pixar, Pixar has shown uh, willingness to switch uh, directors fairly regularly, although I think Frozen is already done with production, so you can't, you probably can't go back in time and take him off. Or can you? Are we in stuck in time again? They are. I was going to say, now all of our news stories have at least one reference to time in them. That's been like a theme <laughs> of the podcast for a while. I like I like the idea of us being unstuck in time and recording a podcast from different points in our timeline, as we've discussed in the podcast before. I think that would be cool. It's the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey podcast. Yes. Well, yes, exactly. Um, with that, we should probably move on, uh, because we do still have a lot of things to cover. And Rach, I'm going to just keep the spotlight on you. Go ahead and seal the show, why don't you? Um, and return us to the Ruby Name Movie Club for your pick from last time, Friends with Kids. So why don't you start us off? Yeah, man, I'm not on the podcast that often, but when I am, I take shit over. Um, So Getting shit done. done. Showing a range of emotions. Bitches get shit done, is all I'm going to (laughs) say. Showing a range of emotions, yeah, totally. Unfortunately, Um, we can't properly animate them on this podcast. Yeah, uh, just because (laughs) we don't understand, like, I don't know how to make you both look pretty and have emotions, Rachel, I'm sorry. I just and I choose the looking pretty. Apparently, that's the other thing to, to go back for a minute. Like, if you have to choose between the women in your animated film looking pretty and having emotions, why are you choosing looking pretty, animator? That okay? Yeah, okay, sorry. Otherwise. Movie club, friends with kids. Go ahead. Okay, clearly I, I stirred a pot here with you, Jordan. Um, <laughs> which I don't think is an idiom. But I just made it up. I, I stirred um, a pot with you. That is not an idiom. Like, I, like I just, you helped him cook yeah, something? Like if the two of us were together stirring a pot, which we could also do a lot of cooking podcasts at some point. Jordan, um, I would, I, Jordan, I would never let you cook. Let's be real. No. Womp womp. Well, okay. Friends with kids. Back <laughs> on track. Friends with kids. So as I said last time, when I first introduced this as the movie club pick, um, I feel like I've started to hit that age in my life where all of my friends are getting engaged or married. Um, and a large portion of people who I knew in high school are not even just engaged and married, but in fact, moving on to starting families, uh, which terrifies me because I'm nowhere fucking close to being anywhere ready to do any of that. Um, 
probably because my life's a mess, but whatever. So uh, I really enjoyed actually the movie Friends with Kids because it is a really, in my view, great portrayal of that next kind of segment in life and how I would love for it to be, um, which is way cool and populated by really attractive people. Um, having babies just all over, which is fun. Um, so I really enjoyed Friends with Kids, but I am also a woman, and I'm not going to lie, as much as, you know, I um, like to maintain and quality, I think that women and men do tend to watch movies, especially movies like this, um, a little differently, and we can get into that a little bit later. I think we're going to have to get into that a little bit later. <laughs> um, so I'm interested to hear, boys, what you all thought of Friends with Kids. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Do you, did you think it was realistic? Did you think it was unrealistic? Um, do you feel those same kind of pressures that I'm feeling in terms of moving to next stages in life, et cetera, et cetera? Oh man, we're going to get deep on the movie clip this week. Um, Chris, why don't we start with you? Um, I really wanted to like this movie because I love pretty much everyone in it. Um, and I actually, there are elements of it that I really, really do like, but that being said, um, this uh, film was kind of doomed from the start with me just because it kind of centers around one of my least favorite tropes of pop culture in any medium, which is the two friends who aren't together decide to have a baby together um, plot, which I, I uh, you guys can jump all over me for this in a little bit when we get into this. But like whenever that becomes a plot line in anything I'm watching, I immediately bristle and I'm just kind of out for the duration. I just it's it's my pet peeve in pop culture um i just can't do it uh yeah and i can understand why if that's one of your pop culture pet peeves friends with kids would not have been the movie for you <laughs> considering that is the exact plot be like it, uh, it's, it is the premise it, it yes. would be like uh if, if it was like look i have one pet peeve and it's plot lines about giant space stations blowing up planets and like bands of rebels attacking them um, so maybe Star Wars is not the greatest movie club pick. Oh, womp womp. Um, okay. Well, I have a different major pet peeve that Friends with Kids hit on. Um, so Chris and I, uh, I can stake out different territories about things we didn't like about the movie. I was not a huge fan. There were things I liked about it. Obviously, it has an awesome cast. Um, all of whom were, whom were pretty much very good in it. Um... But my problem that cast, by the way, for the listeners, have you not yet seen the film, includes Adam Scott, Jennifer Westfelt, Maya Rudolph, Chris O'Dowd, Kristen Wiig, John Hamm, uh, to name a few. Um, actually, before I make my point, I want to pause and say, did they just, like, backdoor shoot this during the shooting of Bridesmaids? Because, like, <laughs> most of the cast of this movie is in Bridesmaids, and they both came out in 2011. It's possible. <laughs> they were just like, well, we got it 45 minutes. Let's go down to a restaurant and shoot this restaurant scene. Um, I thought that several times throughout the movie, but... Yeah, I actually did too. Um, my big thing, like, Chris's big thing is the premise irks him because he thinks it's unrealistic, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But my big thing is, for the premise to be carried off, I need the characters to be realistic. And I didn't I didn't feel like uh, our two main characters, Adam Scott and Jennifer Westfeld, were particularly realistic or well-realized. Um... And I mean, maybe this is maybe part of this ties into the the premise problem that you have, Chris, because it's just like 
all of the problems they have throughout the movie are the problems that if you were to make a pro and con list for like why I should and shouldn't ha or shouldn't have a baby with my friend who I'm not involved with, that's what you would come up with. Like in the first five minutes of making this uh, pro and cons list, that's what you would come up with. And like I get that the movie makes a point of the fact that they didn't do this. I just don't buy that two people have a kid without even having a full conversation about some of these things. And that drove me completely insane. Um, another thing I want to say just in my initial, and then we can get into some deeper stuff, is like the movie has a lot of interesting characters in it, I think, and interesting, well-realized characters. It just doesn't spend almost any time with them. We focus almost all of our time on Adam Scott and Jennifer Westfeld, who are the two characters to me who feel like they're the least fully formed and they're in the least interesting of all the relationships. So, there are my initial thoughts. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, I, and I definitely see where you guys are coming from. I think that there's a certain amount of um, sort of suspending reality in a number of the instances. Um, but I kind of don't entirely mind doing that because I think that it opens up some room for the cast to be really both funny and moving at the same time. Um, I think that overall it's a really subtly hilarious script. Um, and probably because most of it wasn't scripted. I imagine when you get this group of people around a dinner table, most of their conversation was in fact not put on the page. Um, I appreciated the fact that like, if there's a movie in modern memory that is reminiscent of how my friends talk or really how I'd like us to talk, this is that film. Um, and it's probably a group of celebrity friends who I wish were actually my friends, um, rather than you idiots. Um, <laughs> I feel so like we have better conversations on this we're podcast. We're all you got, Rachel. Yeah, I feel like we have better conversations on this podcast every week than we're had mo through most of Friends with Kids, but okay. Well, um, I would also, I, I, oh, I had another point. What was the, what was the first thing you said? Oh, this is fan disbelief thing. Um, Chris and I were talking about this earlier, actually, and I feel like I don't mind suspending disbelief in the premise, and I understand, like, we all have our pop culture pet peeves, so it's cool, Chris, that you do, but for me, it's all about, like, within the premise, you have to have realistic characters, and the two main characters in this movie just didn't gel for me uh, as real. Because yeah, you don't were, believe that Megan of... Fox would ever date Adam Scott. Uh, well, again, like, I always have to accept, like attractive women dating uh I, I can't even say if adam scott's slightly less attractive because i know a lot of people who are very attracted to adam scott so oh my God, i think he's incredibly attractive I was so like... then there no i have no problem with that i just didn't feel like they never felt like characters yeah th there was something about both leads that felt like they their characters were written as a little bit cooler than either actor performer could really had a range for like i i, I never really saw either of these two people as like the cool ones that their characters kind of were in this movie. So there was always like little things that were kind of like setting me off as just like just little moments that just didn't really feel like right for me. Like for instance, like every time Adam Scott called, um, uh, Oh my God. Gen uh, Jennifer Westfield doll. Uh, it, it just, it just really took me out of it for a moment for some reason. It was just, it just seemed like a weird little script tick they kind of got married to in the first couple scenes they were just like oh we can't really drop this now we have to keep this going throughout the film but like every time it just like i just kind of it, it just felt strange 
it's, it's almost like your dad calling you bro. I'll, I'll be honest, um, for a while I thought her name was Doll, like D-A-H-L, and it was just like a weird thing that the movie decided to name the character Doll. Um, yeah. Because it's, it like, they maybe say it at the beginning, but then it's a long time before another character calls her by her name. Um, but And he just calls her Doll throughout, so I'm like, maybe that's her name, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that didn't work for me at all. Um, and it wasn't just that they didn't feel as cool, though I think that's a good point, Chris. They didn't feel like best friends, which the movie hinges on them being best friends. Oh, see, I I disagree with that. I think that there was a realistic level of best friendness. And I think that part of why I actually really liked this film is because I think, and clearly you guys disagree, but I think it did a good job at kind of placing you in the middle of a friendship that has already, like, already has 20 years behind it. Um, and it didn't try to do the, like, the sappy montage at the beginning to establish their friendship or anything like that. Um, it kind of starts you where they are now, and then over the course of the film, you kind of get back to where they were, especially, like, spoiler alert, with that, like, very much towards the end with the, you know, the, the scrapbook, um talking about the family that they formed, not just by having a baby, but over the course of their friendship. And maybe I'm just overly sentimental about it because I am a very, I'm very much a strong believer in this idea of the family that you make out of the friends that you find along the way. Um, And so I was willing to kind of make allowances for um, character completion, but Hey, that's the premise of like every sitcom that I love ever. So I'm behind. I'm I'm totally down with that as a story format. I just and again, like I feel like you have uh, John Hamm and Kristen Wiig and Chris O'Dowd and Maya Rudolph as these two couples on the sidelines of this movie. That maybe like if we were supposed to buy these six people as a, a family, which the beginning of the movie sort of pitched, I didn't because there was never any. Like, we got thrown into a point in the story where, like, we're supposed to just buy their family, but we've never really seen them work that way. And so we're just, at, like, the whole story exists in a time frame where they are not. Like, where their lives have pulled them apart from each other. Um, which is fine, but I feel like I never got enough of a feel for either of the couples on the sideline. And I definitely never got enough of a feel for all of them as a group of friends. For a lot of the, like, uh, I guess, so you've sort of moved us here now, but why don't I give the warning if you haven't seen the film, we're going to go into spoilers now. Um, so go ahead and skip ahead, but maybe five, 10 minutes. Otherwise, um, stick with us because we're about to spoil the movie. Um, so for example, the big, I think climactic scene at the, uh, at the dinner table in Vermont when they're all like, when John Hamm and Adam Scott are fighting, um, that was like, it was a good scene for me, uh, from an emotional perspective in the moment, I guess it just never felt like it was backed up at all. Uh, expand on that. So, I mean, like, I think John Hamm was saying a lot of things that his character had said earlier in the movie, but I did because I didn't buy the relationship between John Hamm and Adam Scott at any point in the movie, I didn't necessarily really buy their interaction within the scene. Like, this felt like a big fight between old friends, except that I had never given, been given anything to really sink my teeth into that led me to believe they were actually old friends. Um... You know, I, I, the, the relationships between the larger friend group were not as big an issue for me. I, I, I was, I was fine with that, to be honest with you. Like I, I had enough there that maybe 
that scene didn't hit as hard in terms of like um like friends tearing at each other it for me that was just more like depressing watching what was happening to john ham's character and his own and how that scene reflected more on him than him tearing into uh adam scott and his um relationship with uh jennifer westfeld um i for me like i i, I think more of my problems with assumed degrees of familiarity came from the relationship between jason and jewel it, it just like there were moments where it didn't where I agree with you, Jordan, that it didn't seem like they had developed their friendship in an organic way, which was to say that it, it, it almost seemed, I think I almost had the opposite problem for you. For me, it almost seemed a little too perfect from the outside. It, it almost was just like, I wish maybe at the beginning they would have shown a little bit more of the hints of where, why these two people weren't together from the start it, it it all just seemed a little too um i i guess uh orchestrated right from the get-go for me so i'm actually going to defend the film's avoidance of the kind of retrospectives that that completely sets up the various different friendship dynamics for a number of reasons Number one being that I think the film has, I don't want to say a mission because obviously it doesn't have a mission, but I think that the film is trying to portray a, a very distinct kind of point in a person's life. Um, and that is after you've been friends with people for 20 years. And maybe, I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't like necessarily remember why your friends but you've reached the point in your friendship where you don't need to be making the justifications for your friendship um you just have people who are your people like and adam scott is jennifer westfeld's person and vice versa in this film so i'm like i actually don't have a problem with that so much um so let me ask uh i assume rachel that this worked for you and you can chime in if it didn't but it would surprise me Chris, let me ask you, um, yeah. did the romantic elements to the, their friendship or their relationship work for you at all? Because this is something that the film like shies away from at the beginning and then dives into hardcore in its last half. Um, did, so did you buy them as romantic interests? Uh, at times, yes. At other times, no. Like I said, like the relationship just seemed a little too neat and pat for me at the beginning of the movie. Um, I mean, you really never get into like, the issues of why they aren't romantically together until sort of around the middle of the movie. And even that is this, this sort of like kind of deflection that they always get into where it's just like, oh, we're not attracted to each other. Um, it, it's never like, because, you know, even like in like close friendships like that, like there there has to be like other reasons keeping them apart aside from the fact that they want to fuck other people. Like that's that there needs to be, at least for me, just a little bit more of like, you know, you're never completely compatible with anybody. And I think that the first portion of the movie did a little hit a little bit too hard on just like, Oh, these people are like perfect for each other. They're two peas in a pod and almost painted it as just like a little bit too much of a rosy picture for me at the beginning where it um, seemed almost, it, it just, it was, um, it, it just left you questioning, like, like, why haven't they gotten together yet? There, there was no room for doubt there, which, uh, out of an otherwise, 
for me, like, reasonably smart script just kind of seemed like a big oversight. Um, so I found, like, the ups and downs in the romance to be a little jarring from time to time, but I, I did... I did like the genuine chemistry between the two leads. I, I did think that they had good chemistry, not consistently throughout the movie, but for for the big moments, I think their chemistry really worked for me. Okay. Um, so I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be standing alone and saying like, I didn't really buy them as friends, but then when the, when like the romantic overture comes on, like I buy that two people who had a kid together might grow to have romantic feelings for each other. I just don't know that in execution it worked for me either. It just, it felt like, um, and I think this maybe just because by that point I was, I had been taken out of the movie by other things, but it felt like a foregone conclusion that like, that's the, like, that's the arc this movie was going to have to take is like, they are friends, they have a kid, they decide they're falling in love and they're going to be together. Um, and it just felt very conventional to me to the point that like, I don't know that the characters actually fit into that story arc. It just felt like the story arc was imposed upon them. Yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying there. I think I think that is uh, definitely something similar to what I was feeling there in that um, the it, you you kind of know how this movie is going to turn out, which I, I wouldn't say is a knock against it. But the the way the script develops these characters in the beginning, it, it's it's almost like very smartly written characters, if not fully drawn characters are kind of set into a chain of events that seems so predictable from the the get-go that you kind of imagine that there is going to be some more zigs and zags along the way or even at the end and what you get instead is um what you signed up for yeah exactly what what you thought you were going to uh, which is like again like i have yeah. no problem with predictability in a movie uh if i if, you know if i think it's done well virtually every sure. romantic comedy ever follows the exact same arc and you know, I, I like a lot of them. I like a lot of them a whole lot. Uh, it's it's not an unsatisfying formula, but it's just for some reason, I, I, I think just be, again, because like I, I really like this script. I mean, maybe like I have my issues with it, but there there is some real wit to this script. So I, I really thought that the, um, uh, the, the predictability and almost some of the cliches from the open were there to subvert expectations for what was going to happen later on in the film. So I found myself more surprised at anything that things kind of ended exactly where you would have predicted they would end from watching the first five minutes. Yeah, I did sort of keep waiting for the script to take turns because I expected more from it. Because it is, like, and I know I, I'm being sort of down on the movie, which I don't think is, I don't think it's a bad movie. I just don't think it was particularly no, great. Um, so I, I do want to say that. But... It is like it's a good script and it's very smart and funny at some points, um, but it fits into this. It, it fits in. It seems almost like it's at war with itself in terms of it. It's created characters that should be better than the formula, um, and then shoved them into the formula to the point where, in some instances, it seems like it's shaving down characters like the couples on the sidelines that I talked about, and in others, it seems like it's forcing characters to behave in ways that are totally at odds with what, in theory, they were about at the beginning of the movie. Um, which works if that's the emotional arc. It just didn't work for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that they really do shave down so much on the characters that are kind of on the periphery. Like, yes, they're supporting characters and they're not as prominent. But again, going back to this idea that it's a film that's trying to represent a very distinct moment in a friendship, where especially a, a group dynamic like that, where you go from being a solid group of six people together to the coupling off 
to the peeling off as you have children. And I think that that's not unrealistic. And I thought that it was a really good use of specifically John Hamm and Kristen Wiig. I think it was an interesting juxtaposition specifically for John Hamm because we get him super serious in Mad Men and then you get him funny in roles like Bridesmaids. And those are obviously the two that I think were right up top while watching this. But it's interesting to kind of see how the different dynamics of him as an actor um, worked together in one character. He was a supreme douchebag in this film. Um, He kind of comes to terms with it and even admits to it um, in a way that I think is actually not all that unrealistic. Um, When you're in a relationship that you find falling apart, you get really desperate and you do things that you don't necessarily agree with or like, um, and you might not see it until you're out of that situation. Um, so I actually thought that the sort of awkward, painful, weird, and at the same time comfortable elements of the friends group was a pretty fair representation of the dynamics of a larger group of friends, like a group friendship. So, um, so I, I don't think that like the John Hamm, Kristen Wiig relationship or the Maya Rudolph, Chris O'Dowd relationship didn't work for me. I actually think both of them work pretty well. They just felt like pat. Uh, I guess I'll use Chris's uh, Chris's term neat at this point. Like I I had, I had hoped that they were gonna. They seemed like interesting couples at the beginning of the movie, and I'd hoped they were gonna go somewhere different than like counter examples for the main uh, couple and nothing more really. Yeah, I mean. If this were a sitcom, I would agree with you, Jordan, but I, in the span of time they had to accomplish what they needed to accomplish, I don't know how uh, realistic an expectation that is. I mean, sure, I, I think it can be done, it can be done great, but I don't think it's easy to do. No, that's certainly true. It's, I, guess, I guess maybe the early minutes of this movie set me up for something better than what it became. And I'll definitely agree with you on that, yeah. And that, that left me disappointed. <laughs> Because it seemed like, oh, all these characters are really interesting, and this is going to be, like, an exploration of all of that. And then, it, like, it winnowed down to the two that I thought, like, you know, for the reasons we discussed, were least effective, um, more than it was a story about all of these people. And then um, it did basically exactly what you'd expect with their story. I feel like if, if, if it had had a wider scope as it seemed to at the beginning of the movie, and it followed all three couples more, I might have had less problems with Adam Scott and Jennifer Westfeld's uh, arc, because... It could have been, you know, juxtaposed in more interesting ways. And if it had, had little, a little bit less of the screen time that it had, I might have just been uh, okay with that, the fact that it followed the conventional steps. Um, but because we, we sort of focused on that one, uh, you know, my attention has to focus on it and the problems are more apparent. Change, changing topics for a second. Uh, can I ask what you guys saw at the end of the film? Rach? So that the way that that final scene is done, I'm not actually a massive fan of. Um, just because I think it's an attempt to pull their relationship too quickly in the complete opposite direction. Um, so I wasn't. I mean, I'm happy with the end result, but I wasn't like too thrilled with like the final interaction. Put it neatly. <laughs> um. So, I mean, the end, the end works for me in that it, it works in a rom-com sense of, like, she turns him away, he does the big running thing, um, he makes a big speech, and he gets her back. That's, like, that's all fine and dandy, I guess. Yeah. It was strange, it was strange 
how abrupt it was, I think. Some movies get a lot of energy and a lot of uh, power, I think, from an abrupt ending. This one, I sort of expected an epilogue about, like, oh, they worked out, and now, like, they're raising their kid together, and it's great, but we didn't get that for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on. Yeah, me either. It didn't really end in a way that I, I felt was open to interpretation, and it also didn't really end in a way that I felt like I actually had closure. To me, it kind of felt like, again, that this idea of, like, it, it seemed to me that Jennifer Westfeld really wanted to subvert some expectations of the rom-com, but at the same time kept getting tied up in them. I like and ending like you don't really get a lot of rom-coms ending with the line fuck the shit out of me. Um but at the same time it's like uh, it, it was as you said pretty much like beat by beat the the um paint by numbers rom-com ending. And I'm not sure that it was entirely earned um but Again, it, it was the direction, I think, that, um, uh, yeah, it, it just felt unsatisfying to me. Yeah, I think, I think there's a time and a place for an ambiguous ending. I'm not, I'm yeah. not in the camp that you should... I, I don't even think that was ambiguous. I, I... No, it, it wasn't, and I guess abrupt is the word, the word I used yeah. before, and, I, and more what I mean. Because it wasn't an ambiguous ending, but it, it came from, you know, it, it abruptly ended, um, which is, again, something I think can work really well, uh... But I don't see why that was the choice that was made here. Like, there was no particular reason for this movie to have that sort of ending. Well, and I would again go back to this idea of this movie slotting into a very specific um, time in a person's life. Um, they give you this idea, like, this segment of the having a baby part. Um, they don't necessarily give you the super friendship beforehand. They don't necessarily give you the super romance after. But it's, I think it was an interesting case study into this portion of what somebody's life is like. Um, and for that, I think it was an interesting, again, to use the term case study, I think it was interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I would... I, I, honestly, I think I've done a poor job uh, of articulating the things that, that I didn't particularly like about the movie. but. If you're going to focus uh, very closely in on a certain point of a person's life, I feel like that person should feel more like a real person. Um, so that Jason and Jules never felt like fully formed characters to me makes the the idea of the film's focus uh, fall apart. Um, Chris, any last thoughts? Because we should probably move on to talking about Homeland. Uh, no, not really. Uh, I, I liked, despite the fact that I had a lot of problems with the movie, uh, I, I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, I just... You're you're always gonna have a hard time until a bunch of my friends start pairing off and deciding that they're going to raise a kid together. I'm always going to have a hard time buying into this premise. Like you're just never gonna sell me on it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I understand that because I think like the premise. Whereas a lot of the fantastic premises that we buy, the premise uh, have at least some sort of grounding. The premise of this movie is grounded in an irrationality that either needs an explanation or doesn't work. Um, and people tell them they're being irrational in the movie, but I didn't necessarily get the explanation of, of why um, to a level that satisfied me. Uh, so I guess in closing, Rachel, you are very pro friends with kids. Chris, you are very mediocre on it. And I'm uh, slightly more negative though. Not, I won't go so far as to call it bad. Is that a fair assessment? Sure. All right. Yep. All right. Before we shut this down, I should announce the next movie club pick for next time. 
Uh, it is, as always, going available on Netflix Watch Instant, and we will do it in roughly four podcasts, though we reserve the right to bump it a week forward or backward as needed. As needed. Um, so for next time, guys, let's watch With Nail and I. Okay, I gotta go. Get out of here. Rachel fun, and I will talk about Homeland. Chris doesn't watch Homeland, so we're letting him slide out of the podcast so he doesn't get spoiled. Chris will continue slide to be the worst. Uh, and yeah. Chris, we will talk to you soon. Rachel, I'm going to turn to you now. We are two episodes deep into season three of Homeland. What have you been thinking so far? I'm a little concerned. <laughs> and I, I feel like this segment is going to be a little bit like, let's talk about Homeland, right? <laughs> like, um, I feel like every conversation thing, I have about Homeland is, is sort of a, let's talk about Homeland. Let's talk about Homeland. And maybe it's just because um, while watching Homeland, I am always metaphorically wrapped in the warm of bra- warm embrace of one Mandy Patinkin. Um, I am actually wrapped in his embrace. Uh, oh. Mandy and I have been lovers for some time. <laughs> I just, just I picture just our two beards. <laughs> oh my God, stop it, Neil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, just, I just love him. I, just lo- I love him as Saul. Um, I'm really, I'm in the market for a Saul-esque mentor um in my own personal life uh if anybody you know knows i'd one. be happy to tell you they're both the smartest and the dumbest fucking person i've ever met if you'd like right i i also i, I mean that's so true um that's just so true um but i'm concerned about season three because it feels i for almost every moment of these first two episodes I couldn't help but have this sense of deja vu. Like, haven't we sort of done all of this before? Um, are we keeping spoilers out of this? or are uh, we... For the moment, we'll keep spoilers out, and then I'll give the spoiler warning that I always give, and we can dive into it. Um, so... Do you, or do you want to dive into it now? Do you want to just jump it right in? I mean, I sort of just want to dive in, because I feel, again, I think that because there are... Because a lot of it feels similar um, to what we've seen before, um, it's hard not to talk about what you're not talking to talk about. about. Fair yeah, enough. All right, listeners, if you haven't already uh, surmised this is about to happen, we're going to take the gloves off. Uh, if you have not watched Homeland Season 3, or really, I guess, any of Homeland, probably, and you care about spoilers, which on this show you probably should, um, go ahead and pause us, turn us off, come back next week, or go watch Homeland, whatever floats your boat. Rachel, go ahead. Gloves are off. So basically, I'm afraid that the Carrie is crazy, but Carrie's not necessarily wrong, but Carrie needs help, and then everybody else will realize that Carrie's not wrong. Structure um, is being utilized in this season too quickly after the last time we've seen it. Um, I mean, like, as the main character, we know that Carrie needs to maintain some sort of connection to the agency, and it appears in these first two episodes that she is burning all of her bridges. Um, I think that there is an interesting pushback in terms of what the agency is doing to kind of subvert her at that level. It's more, it's, previously there was a lot of kind of just letting Carrie go 
and letting her demons get to her and letting her dig her own hole. And don't mind, like, don't get me wrong, like, she's definitely digging a hole for herself here in these first two episodes. Um, but I think that there's a little more pushback. Um, somebody at the agency is clearly, like, at all points helping her dig that hole. Um, which I think is interesting. The only way, I mean, I'm just, I'm concerned, and obviously we have, I mean, total spoilers, we have yet to see the reintroduction of Brody in this season. Um, Based on the trailer for next week's episode, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen next week. Um, So I think that that will be a really pivotal point, how they manage to do that, in terms of how the season overall is going to be successful. at this point, though, I almost want Carrie to be completely alienated from the CIA for the rest of the season. I just don't know how they would do that. And mind you, all of that said, I still think it's a diverting hour of television. I still think it's a good show. I think I still think that Mandy Patinkin is great. Um, I am still unsure whether or not Claire Danes is actually just that crazy and we're all taking advantage of her. Um, and I really love this idea. I think that Rupert Friend and the his character Peter, right? Peter uh, is his character's yeah, name. Quinn is what I like to call him because that's his last uh, name. But... Peter Quinn. I think that, and I think we should talk about him later. But oh, I will. think that he represents something very interesting in the show. Um, but I'm concerned that they're utilizing already seen pieces and. I'm concerned about their ability to use, to make the sum, like, to make the product more than the sum of its parts. Um, so we shall see. That was, a, that was a whole lot of you feeling your feelings, and I feel like there's a lot to, for me to respond I mean, to in that. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about Homeland, Jordan. So I've, I've developed, well, I've had two theories. One from, that I developed last season while watching the show, the one that I developed while thinking about it, uh, running up to and leading into this. Um, the first, the, the one I just thought of recently in the run-up to this season while I was thinking about, uh, Homeland is the things that are greatest about the show and the things that are worst about this show are kind of inextricably tied in a way that, like, I feel like Homeland shares Carrie's madness in a way, um, in that, like, all the things that I liked the most about the show were the things that are the worst for it, plot-wise. Like, the Brody Carey stuff was the best part of the first two seasons of the show, even though Brody being alive in season two led to a lot of the huge problems that season two had. Um, Carrie being, like, completely batshit nuts is a fascinating story because, like, it's actually... I think the show is actually really good at portraying her mental illness. Um, and I think Claire Danes is amazing at it. And watching... Uh, watching Carrie deal with grapple with that is fascinating television but part of the premise of the show is that it's an espionage show um and that means that Carrie can only be a certain level of mentally ill she needs to be functional enough that we can believe that she's working with uh a high security clearance at the CIA um and one thing that I really liked about season two was that you know season one left us with Carrie ostracized from from the CIA season two was immediately like eh we need her back bring her in um and like was it plausible? No. But because it did it immediately, I was like, good. I don't have to wait three or four episodes for something that I know is inevitable. We're two episodes deep into season three, and I really like what they've been doing with Carrie as a character, but we know Carrie has to be involved with the CIA, like you said. And at this point, 
it, it feels like the show is putting itself into a position where it's going to be harder and harder to get back there at any reasonable pace. Um, the other, the other, the other theory that I have, which I think fits with this season so far is that the structure of Homeland sort of maps on to Carrie's bipolar and that season one was sort of a depressive state where Carrie was losing a lot. No one really believed her. She kind of became unhinged and she lost pretty much everything in her quest to prove Brody, uh, was a terrorist, which she was right about, but no one would, uh, believe her. Season two, on the other hand, was sort of this manic period where Carrie's just win, 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 win. And like everything that Carrie does works out well. And she manages to capture a terrorist on American soil. And she manages to like, uh, keep Brody in line and, and turn him. So that he's playing a double agent and like everything goes really well for her throughout season two until, you know, the very end. And I feel like the very end is a transition back into a depressive state, uh, which I find interesting. Although it's questionable whether that means that every other season of Homeland is going to be like bad TV based on the style of it that you like. Yeah, very true. I, I do think that, uh, and we've talked about this concept before, right? The show mirroring um, Harry's Yeah, this is and downs. This, this has been something that's been on my mind since season two, definitely. Which I think is definitely a very interesting concept, and I can definitely see it. Um, but I think that if this is an arc that, if that's a cycle that's going to keep going, I think that they need to start figuring out new and better ways to portray that. Whereas with these first two episodes, I feel like they're, I, I feel like I'm getting a lot of recycling. And I also understand, I mean, to go deeper into this idea of like the shows, the show mirroring Harry's mental state. I mean, there's this idea, right. Of like deja vu and paranoia and vicious repetition that is intrinsic to her illness. Um, and in that way, it makes sense. But in terms of looking at it as a standalone hour of television, um, which can be more difficult to do with the with with cable shows because they tend to be created as like eight to thirteen episode blocks versus an episode by episode sort of thing. But I still think it's important for an episode to be able to stand on its own a little bit. Um, I, I think that I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about where they're going. And I do think if we want to bring this back around to Quinn, I think that the character of Quinn is actually going to be a bit of a saving grace for the show. And I think that setting it up where he has a clear and distinct connection to Carrie, but is also growing into an entity of his own, um, is a good way to potentially deflect a little bit from the Carrie's being Carrie kind of aspects of the show as it's been set up now to something newer um and in my opinion more interesting at this point yeah frankly I um I haven't had problems with the two episodes that you seem to have had I think season three is I don't know where it's going yet and that worries me but I feel like the two episodes we've had have been you know somewhere between pretty good and very good um but I agree with you definitely on Quinn I feel like He's sort of become the uh, the conscience of the CIA, uh, and that's an interesting character to throw into the mix when Saul is is being pulled between, I guess, Quinn and or Carrie and Dardal, who has more uh, Machiavellian techniques. So I think I think Quinn plays an interesting role. I think the show hasn't done a great job in the first few episodes of setting up what they seem to be hinting will be the the big you know terrorist related arc this season. Um, the two episodes we've seen have felt more like an extended epilogue to season two. 
Um, and in that regard, I feel like they've, they haven't made season two work any better for me, but they have cleaned up the mess that was the, the maybe the back quarter of Homeland season two fairly well. And, and that, I mean, that's a particularly apropos way to put it, considering a looming presence in these first two episodes has been the yet-to-be-fixed scene of the bombing that ends season two. Right. Um, so, I mean, it gets pretty literal there, right, where none of the mess has really been cleaned up yet. Um, and in that sense, I guess it makes sense uh, <laughs> for... I should have seen that one coming. Um, in that sense... I understand why it's like the mess hasn't been cleaned up and therefore we're dipping back into it in terms of, you know, the carry cycle and what have you. Um, and I don't, and again, like to reiterate, I don't think that these were bad episodes. Um, I kind of just expect more from the show. Um, it's kind of like when Game of Thrones got bad and it wasn't ever really bad, but you knew how much greater the show could be. I'm I'm waiting for the show to kind of get back to that in a way that's a little less problematic for me. Um, but to go back to Peter Quinn, um, I think that you were spot on in calling him this kind of really weird new moral center for the show and for the agency, especially as Saul having ascended to leadership of the CIA um, starts to kind of lose himself in that um, and lose himself in like the and what he sees as the legacy and the future of the agency. Um, he used to be our moral center, our, our big bearded papa bear, and um, that's not happening so much anymore. Um, and we see that distinctly in the breakdown of the relationship between him and Carrie. Um, and yes, there's still entanglement, and yes, I think that there are still, um, there's still a feeling of connection there, but Saul's ability to be there for Carrie the way that Carrie has always needed him to be there for her is no longer possible because of his new position. Um, and I do think it's interesting that Quinn is sort of stepping into that, this idea, right, that he he needs to set off. So was it the second episode where it was the series of um, attacks on the people who had carried out the attack on no, the that CIA? Was, that that was, was the first episode. That was the first episode. So. Um, if you haven't watched and you're still listening to set that up a little bit, um, the CIA identifies, I think it was six mm -hmm. um, targets who were related to carrying out the bombing on the CIA. And they, um, and Saul basically carries out this, orchestrates and carries out this complicated domino attack where they have 20 minutes to eliminate each of the targets before they can um, make each other aware of the different attacks and therefore go underground and be out of the reach of the CIA. And Quinn is tasked with starting this off, which I think is interesting, right? Because Quinn came in as this outside element um, to sort of shake things up last season. Um, and now he's coming in and he's in, like, he's now intrinsic and integral to the institution, but it's clearly a position that he is not comfortable with and really not willing to accept. Um, and of course, he almost screws the whole thing up by refusing to place the bomb on the car, eliminating the first target because the target's son is in the car. Um, and it almost puts the whole thing out of whack. And then he winds up killing the son anyway. Um, and he's incredibly upset about that. Um, and I think it's interesting. And he, Saul even says it, right? Like at one point, Qu 
Quinn comes to Saul and is just like, I'm not comfortable with what's going on here, both in terms of what's going on with the operation to try to get back the agency's legitimacy, but also what's being done to carry in that quest. Um, and he says point blank, listen, I'm not going to pull out on you in the middle of this, but when this is over, I'm done. And Saul says, well, like, let's not make decisions now. And he's like, no, I'm done. Like, I don't care what the end game is because, of course, it's it's Homeland. And at the end, I think you're going to get a certain sense of, I mean, even at the end of this mission, you're going to get a certain sense of closure and completion. Um, who knows what that will be yet. Um, and I think that it's interesting that um, in this world of shifting norms and, and relative goodness, Quinn is like making a hard and fast decision being like no like this is not okay nothing no level of success in this mission will make what's happening okay and I'm going to step away from it and I'm letting you know that now I think it's really interesting in the world of the show I think it's very interesting looking at like current political landscapes um yeah and I'm I'm really into the character I think I think um you hit on a lot of what I I thought was very effective about the second episode of this season, uh, which I preferred of the two we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, like, Homeland, it, it, it's a complicated show in terms of, I feel like, it's it's interpersonal and its political messages are really, really also intertwined. This is another thing. Like, it's, it's best and its worst sides are intertwined. It's, like, the things that work, the things that don't. It's interpersonal, it's character. Like, everything about this show is so jumbled together that it's hard, like, it's hard for me to love and or dislike any part of it, because they're all pieces of a larger puzzle that I, like, often love and sometimes dislike. Um, but I think that, that uh, the second episode really worked as uh, as the sort of metaphor of making the interpersonal political again, um, in terms of just the question that, that kept running through my head uh, is, like, what is all this for at the end of the day? Um, you know, We've seen we've seen what being in the intelligence game has done to Carrie. We've seen what it's doing to Quinn. We've seen what it's doing to Saul and what it did to Brody. Um, and you know, virtually every character. And yet, like the attacks still happen, right? Like nine eleven happened in this world. Um, the big bombing on the CIA happened in this world. Uh, ultimately, like the intelligence officers that we see are, you know, if they're effective, they're effective some of the time, but they're not effective all of the time. And look at the costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that part of what makes the show interesting is that is the character of Carrie herself and, like, talking about the cost. Like, Carrie is clearly a difficult character for people to associate with and, I think, feel for. Um, And this is a conversation that we've had many, many times before in terms of measuring any piece of art, be it a, a novel, a TV show, a movie, um, based on the level of um, feelings that you can have for a character. Um, it's Sometimes it's really hard to feel for Carrie. Um, but you sort of have to. Um, and you sort of find yourself doing it, even though it's difficult. Um, I don't know. And I think that it's, I think that that level of relativity is something that's kind of, that, that is projected to the, the more political discourse of the film and this uh, this idea of gray area which is always something that i'm kind of like i'm super interested in and i think Um, that's where homeland lives Uh, yeah and homeland lives in the gray area um but handles things that you would think would deal in absolutes but don't 
Um, Except when they do, and sometimes the show does go to absolutes. And again, like, I think uh, season one, I, I, I expected greatness from Homeland. By the end of season two and now, I, I approach it with more uh, a feeling of, like, this show is bananas, and it's a mess, and sometimes greatness emerges from that mess, and sometimes terribleness emerges from that mess. And, like, like I said, the things I love and the things I hate are so intertwined that I cannot separate them, so I just have to go along for the ride. Yeah, definitely. And something... On a, on a lighter note, something that I, I, I noted last episode was it's probably really great for the Danes dancey relationship uh, outside of the film, uh, like outside of the show. Obviously, like for those of you who aren't aware, Claire Danes is married to one Hugh Dancy, who is currently starring as Will in NBC's Hannibal. Another uh, it's character probably... who is like deeply mentally unstable and yet well, yeah. has to be competent in his job. So first of all, <laughs> I wonder if they just have like let's practice being crazy days in their house. Um and on the other side of that, it's probably really good that I think that they're on opposite filming schedules because could you imagine having to inhabit the character that they have to inhabit and then like go home to somebody who is inhabiting a similar character and not just be crazy all the time. I like the idea of the crazy days. I would love to see like both of them <laughs> guest star on SNL for a sketch involving like their their home life while they're like just playing Will and Carrie. <laughs> like it just it would be pretty outrageous. Um But yeah, no, I I still kind of expect good things from the show. Um and again, like to reiterate, I still think it's definitely an hour worth of television worth watching. Um and I think that part of what makes the show one of the better ones on television right now is that there is this sort of room to pick out, like, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, and this is how, um, you know, this, this idea of discomfort, which you said before, Jordan, which is like, I don't know where it's going, and that makes me somewhat uncomfortable. I think that that shows that this is actually a good show. Oh, yeah, this is a show that um, makes me incredibly uncomfortable all the time and you earlier you earlier said like that you sometimes have trouble feeling for carrie that's never the problem that i have i i can always feel for carrie but it's just sometimes she's you know a colossally irrational character which is like one of the things i like most about the show because mm -hmm. she's playing a woman who's mentally unstable and sometimes she acts like a mentally unstable person um and that that's difficult to deal with as a viewer when you're like like you're so smart. Why are you do like? Why are you going to a reporter to shout the CIA is attacking to me and not realizing that makes you sound crazy? Yeah. Um, and it's because and I mean, she's mentally unstable. <laughs> and and any number of pieces have been written about Homeland's portrayal of mental illness. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that area, but I'll just say that those articles I find really intriguing. Um, because mental illness is something that has been dealt with in pop culture, but with various varying levels of kind of like complete taboo and utter exploitation. Um, and a lot of people actually are pretty happy with the way that mental illness is being portrayed on the show. Um, speaking of, I would be interested to hear, because we focus mostly on Carrie, but there is this significant B plot, which is Dana. Um, her trials and tribulations after the incidents with her father. Um, she obviously tried to kill herself, uh, was not successful, was sent to um, a mental health facility and has since come out of that facility with varying levels of difficulty. Um, 
and I'm interested to kind of see where this is going. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Jordan, because I've talked about Dana with other people who are just like, oh my God, I hate this subplot. But I actually like yeah, it. Yeah, I've never hated the Dana subplot. I know that's like a big portion of the Homeland audience hates Dana and everything she's doing. Um, and I feel like there are moments, uh, especially in season two, where it goes a little bit off the rails. But I think Morgan Saylor is excellent. And I actually feel like the show usually knows what it's doing with her. And again, like with the like with the recognition that she is a teenage girl, and I think it's interesting because I think there is a little bit of Dana being set up as the mini Carrie, like Dana facing mental health issues, having this strong and kind of difficult to define connection to her father. Like obviously not the same as Carrie, but in a similar vein, um, and her dealing with those issues and how she's dealing with those issues um, and her being, you know, a similarly irrational person because she is a teenage girl versus a fully grown woman who's facing issues with being bipolar. Um, I think it's an interesting play there in this idea of irrationality um, and how it comes into play in a very human way. Um, I also think that Carrie and Dana are giving us a great... uh two great examples right now of like people saying like every the world is a crazy place like everything that's going on right now is crazy and being right but also not being able to see their own level of crazy um it's like it's a very interesting and i think incredibly accurate portrayal of these people like are very smart and they they give trenchant analysis except they can't really see themselves fully and like that is that is their biggest issue um and I think that, again, that can be frustrating as a viewer, but I think it's completely realistic that Dana, she's right when she says, like, you know, maybe the mental health system is crazy and maybe the world is crazy, um, but I'm not crazy. She's right. I don't like. I don't think Dana is crazy, but also she's not really fully viewing the fact that she probably still has a lot of issues um, and maybe isn't as psychologically healthy as she wants to think. And talking about what I think is a an interesting and really on point portrayal of mental illness I thought that it was a really one of the final scenes that we saw with Dana and her mother in the second episode was Dana pulling her mother into the bathroom where she attempted suicide and saying you know what this was not a cry for help like I really wanted to die like I wasn't playing a game here and because I think that that a lot of people look at especially adolescent mental health issues as a phase or a cry for help or a, a search for attention. And I think that um, Dana's very radical and very, um, you know, not everyday life situation um, is an interesting way to kind of show this larger issue um, and to do it well, I think. So I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty happy with the Dana subplot at the moment. Me too. Uh, so you mentioned, I didn't watch the preview from, from next week. So, uh, somehow I just missed it. Uh, you mentioned that you think Brody's coming back next week. How do you feel about that? I, I think that the reintroduction of Brody is probably what I'm most nervous about this season. Um, obviously, we need to see where he is now. Um, I think it's very important in the kind of any sort of redemption of Carrie. I think is going to be linked in some way to the propulsion of the Brody plotline. Even if they're not, I think that just on screen, there needs to be a certain level of balance in those two. That's how the show set it up. 
And I think, like you said earlier, like that character interaction um, between the actors as actors has been really fantastic. And I think that to maintain that, you need to keep those um, those plot lines, even if they're separate, you kind of need to keep them balanced, if that makes any sense. Um, so I'm interested to see how they pull Brody back in. I'm a little nervous about it. Um, but I, I think that it's going to be like a big, it's going to be a big testing moment for the show in the level of success with which they pull that reintroduction off. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I still hope that the show can do it really well. Um, I'm interested to see because it's been a couple of months now, right? Um, it's supposed to have been two months yes. since the bombing. So who knows what kind of crazy mess Brody's gotten himself into over the course of that two months. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see where he is when you consider like this idea of this completely not cleaned up mess back home. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Um, this is a show I think that always pulls the trigger on storylines uh, at different moments than you expect them to. So I figured they would probably bring Brody back earlier than I wanted them to. I would have liked to see him off the off the table for a while longer because I think um, this show needs to figure out if it can survive without the uh, um, Claire Danes, Damien Lewis interactions. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it can. But like, if they do it well, I guess I'll be fine with it. You know? They're, like, the love between uh, Carrie and Brody is sort of one of my favorite things about the show. And I, I say love. I don't actually buy it as love. Um, I, I think of it more as, like, warped affection and yearning. Uh, but I find, like, their interactions fascinating. Um, so if the show can bring, bring that back in interesting ways, cool. Uh, well, the, and do you mean that even if Brody and aren't like actually reunited you just think the reintroduction of Brody to the show still happens too early if it happens next week or this week uh I'm sorry what so like so I don't think that like Brody and Carrie are actually going to interact for quite a while probably the large bulk of the season I think that we'll get Brody back independently but I don't think that they're going to be thrown together quite yet. And But do you think that that's still happening too soon, even if Brody maintains a distinct storyline? I think um, I think the show did something okay. interesting uh, in these first two episodes with the idea of, like, one of the major themes of Homeland, I think, is that you can never really know another person. Um, and I think that Brody being absent allowed the show to play with that with his family and with Carrie in ways that it had sort of hinted at and hadn't gotten around to fully yet. So I would rather Brody be there as, as a spectral presence in the lives of the characters that he's left behind. Um, and as a way for the show to deal with the fact that like he is perhaps even less knowable now that he's not even, not even in front of these people anymore. Um, I don't know that the show can do anything as interesting as that with Damien Lewis off by himself somewhere. That's fair, and I think that's one of the challenges that I see in the reintroduction of the Brody storyline. So I guess we'll just have to see where it goes, um, see to what level he is brought in. Like, there's been a serious, like, pretty serious divide in the one-two plots. Like, there hasn't really, I mean, you have a little bit of a C-plot in terms of Saul and his wife coming back, and Perry and her family as they struggle over the meds issue, but, um... I think that both of those are actually quite tied to the primary plot. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they do bring Brody back in a completely separate plot, how much they rely on that to propel the show forward. 
Um, but I guess we shall see. And the, I mean, the moral of the story is that it's something I'm willing to continue watching. Like there have been a number of shows recently that I've kind of hit a wall with and don't actually think I'm going to continue watching. Um, but Homeland is definitely not one of those shows. Right. All right. Um, um, so I think we can, so can probably wrap up this segment here. Uh, I, I, I am actually writing about Homeland, uh, but not for a VB name this season. I'm writing about Homeland uh, over at uh, nextprojection.com. So if you, so if you care to read more of my thoughts on how this season is going, you can check them out there. Um, with that, I guess we should move into announcing the Rachel's Hardest Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Um, which is always a little weird to announce when you're around. Sorry, I'll go play dead. Yeah, as as you, as, as you do most show. weeks on the show. Um, <laughs> and you know what? This this one there's there's there were it was sort of a low voter turnout this week in terms of uh, best performance in the week. There there was no real stand up performance, and there was uh, there was a winner by just a, a vote or two. But I think I think this was maybe a win for past work more than a win for performance in the week. I can't judge though. I just tally up the votes and announce. So the Rachel Tarnas Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week goes to Amy Poehler, um, who we like to think will be playing Greg Poehler on the sitcom Welcome to Sweden, and who does great work elsewhere and will probably uh, do great work in behind the scenes and occasionally in front of them on Welcome to Sweden. That's a surprising result. I really, I really thought that the votes would have come out for Doctor Who this week, but yeah, you thought you would have thought so, I'm, but they didn't. I'm more than more than happy to to steal your line, Jordan invite Amy Poehler to come on down to the Review to Be Named offices, collect her trophy and small cash prize, and hang out with us for a little bit. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Um, and, you know, I can't really, I can't give an award to the BBC for maybe finding some episode <laughs> that they taped over. Like, that can't happen. <laughs> There's no way, they were they were ineligible, because, like, at most, they've sort of cleaned up a mess they created. I just <laughs> meant more the doctor as the doctor. Oh well, well. But he always we've a, wins. We've got a 50th anniversary special coming up, so I imagine the doctor will have a chance to win best performance in the week uh, sometime next <laughs> month. For now, I think we can wrap that up. Uh, this has been the Review Your Name podcast. I have been Jordan, and I promise I will never try to kiss you or fuck you or impregnate you ever again as long as I live. <laughs>